Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. And Orius lands in the swimming pool, which causes the zombie kids to say, Ah, we, we are, are not, not having, having a blast, blast in, in the, the pool. pool. Good. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm the titular Newest Olympian. I'm a 30-year-old man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid, but I'm reading them now as an adult to determine if this is a book series that we've all been sleeping on. And I'm not on this quest alone. I am back joined again by our editor, someone who makes this show possible and makes the show as good as it is without her. This would be a worse podcast and a much more stressful experience for me making it. It's Sherry Guo. Sherry, how's it going? Hi, Mike. It's going great. As we mentioned last episode, you are now remote, Sherry, so everyone can pick their favorite version of our recordings as we've done one in person and now one remotely via the power of the internet. Yes, I am back in Chicago. Yes, I heard your flight experience was not the most fun given that your airplane didn't have a gate, but clearly they found one for you because you're making it happen. Yes. <laughs> I also appreciate you recording out of what appears to be like a study room or something in school. <laughs> and I think it would be very fun if a classmate or a teacher or someone came in and was very confused because during my college years, I was still making YouTube videos and vines and stuff. And boy, oh boy, did I try to make stuff across campus and hope that no one would ever see me and know what I was doing. I actually had to kick someone out of here because I booked the room and someone else was just in here. So that was a little awkward, but we're all good now. Good. That's great. I'm glad that they have been kicked out. It's for a very important cause. And I think you were well within your rights to kick them out. And speaking of kicking, I say we kick things off and finish up chapter nine and do all of chapter 10 so we can see what's going on in the Sea of Monsters. Sound good? Yeah, let's get right to it. Fantastic. So where we last left our heroes... We had Luke talking with our team, and he was about to go into some big villainous monologue spiel of sorts, and here we go. So Luke first tries to small talk Percy, who immediately, just right off the bat, wastes no time and accuses Luke of poisoning Thalia's tree. And much like the sketch from I Think You Should Leave, the car one, oh my god, he admitted it! Luke immediately admits to doing it, which I did not see coming at all. I could see him being the one responsible, but for him to take Take the blame for it right off the bat was very surprising to me. I can't read my handwriting here. I don't know what I had to say. <laughs> you had some sort of note. I mean, he just jumps right out. We see why. It's because he is the classic villain who thinks he's doing the right thing. And we get into the territory of acting on other people's behalf, which is super gross and makes me hate Luke even more. So not great stuff from now more villainous Luke here. He's really taking on that cold evil persona. Mm hmm. I think in this back portion of chapter nine, we truly see that book two Luke, in terms of his villainy, is an improvement in terms of evil. In book one, he seemed more like a henchman, more like he was doing the bidding of Kronos, but now he feels like he's calling his own shots a little bit more, and I definitely walked away from this chapter fearing Luke more. I don't know how many episodes ago someone asked me, do you think Luke is going to be in play? And I thought, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't really see him being a major player since he wasn't that big of a deal in the first one. But now he's certainly a different class of villain. 
Yeah, he's fully in his villain era, but that's okay. <laughs> Annabeth is in her flop era and Luke is in his villain era. So everyone's in their own era. And Tyson's in his perfect era, which I assume is just always forever and he only has the one era. So Annabeth is furious because Thalia saved their lives and she accuses Luke of dishonoring Thalia. Luke objects, though. He insists that the gods dishonored her. So, again, classic villain thing of him misdirecting feelings and blaming other people for bad things that he has done. He then goes on to say that if Thalia was still alive, she would be on his side. And Annabeth is very upset, calls him a liar. And yeah, this is just that kind of thing where you think you know better and you see villains act on behalf of people who either aren't there or are dead or in Thalia's case, maybe somewhere in between. But this is some truly gross stuff from Luke. Do you have any predictions for how Luke is interpreting whatever event he's talking about versus Annabeth? Ooh, let me see. I hadn't thought about it. I don't know why he would think. I mean, hmm, why would Thalia be upset with the gods? Her father is Zeus, so I could see her being more frustrated with the state of Olympus and Western culture and all that kind of stuff. The same kind of things that are bothering Luke. I could see her having some of that anger because it is her dad and he's supposed to be in charge and keeping order of things. But I don't know about anything specific. But yeah, I'm not really sure. That's a good thing I'll have to think more about. But clearly there must be a hint of truth to it, but I feel like he is probably running with it and over-exaggerating. And I feel like we will learn about it later. I feel like Annabeth mentions it very briefly, either in this chapter or the next, when Percy tries to ask about it. But then, of course, we don't get the full story because it's a YA slash middle grade book. We'll find out in... 200 pages. <laughs> classic, classic. So Luke then goes into a little monologue. Quote, the gods have blinded you. Can't you imagine a world without the Manabeth? What good is that ancient history you study? 3,000 years of baggage. The West is rotten to the core. It has to be destroyed. Join me. We can start the world anew. We could use your intelligence, Annabeth. And her reply is top notch. Quote, she, <laughs> because you have none of your own. Great. We love this. We love to see a sassy Annabeth. We love to see a quick retort. And yeah, this is just, again, the villain stuff of Luke just not being completely wrong, but not going about it in the right way. Also, I think this type of villain is just very compelling because he's not completely wrong. He's just going about writing the wrongs he sees in the wrong way because he's taking it to that like next level extreme kind of like Thanos in the Marvel universe. Yes, a good comparison. It's very much the two wrongs don't make a right type of thing. And if you took all of this energy that you were putting in towards being evil and you channeled it instead towards trying to do some good, and yeah, it can be a bit tedious, but there's other ways to bring about change without destroying everything and killing innocent people. So Luke goes on about how Annabeth deserves better than fighting a hopeless battle. He says that Half-Blood Hill will be overrun with monsters within the month, and any remaining hero will have to join them or be hunted to extinction. And he ends it by saying, quote, you really want to be on a losing team with company like this? Percy, obviously, very upset. And then Luke implies that traveling with a Cyclops is the real means of dishonoring Thalia's memory. And Annabeth shouts for him to stop, which I think is good. But then narrator Percy notes that he senses something more there that is going unspoken, a lot of buildup, and maybe this is how Annabeth disliking Cyclops comes into play. Maybe a Cyclops was a monster or was somehow affecting the journey of Luke, Thalia, and Annabeth, so maybe they have bad blood with Cyclops in particular, but there's clearly some baggage and history there that we're going to learn as you said, in 200 pages. I will not give any spoilers for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Percy can sense that Annabeth is on the verge of tears, so he tells Luke to leave her alone and to leave Tyson out of this as well. And Luke says, oh yeah, I heard Poseidon claimed him. And Percy is surprised that Luke knows this. And Luke can tell that Percy is surprised. And Luke informs PJ that he still has friends at the camp that keep him posted on what's going on. He knows of Percy's plan to find the fleece. And he knows about the coordinates. And clearly there's some sort of mole at Camp Half-Blood. And I don't like it. And I hope we find out who it is. Who do you think it is? Oh, man. 
I could see it being Tantalus, but that feels too obvious. I could see it being someone at the Hermes cabin, maybe one of the Stoles. I don't feel like it's Beckendorf because Beckendorf is way too cool. And we don't know much about Selena Beauregard yet, but she seems nice. So I, I think it would be maybe the Stoles because we haven't learned a lot of cool stuff about them. So they could still turn evil. And it just feels like if it's someone at the Hermes cabin, that would make sense. Okay. So, <laughs> I love this. This is very fun. Guessing game hour with Mike. <laughs> so Luke tries to get under Percy's skin by saying that Poseidon is insulting Percy. And he's not grateful to Percy. And he doesn't care about Percy more than he cares about this monster. Tyson. And that makes Tyson angry, which is good. I'm glad that Tyson also now fully understands when people are being rude to him, which wasn't necessarily the case earlier. Luke says that Percy is being used by the gods, and he asks Percy if he has any sort of idea what is in store for him on his 16th birthday. And then he asks, has Chiron even told you the prophecy? And Percy wants to clap back, but the 16th birthday line is just the right nugget to spark Percy's brain to go down a different train of thought about what it could mean, what is this, what is he talking about, etc. And Percy's especially worried about Luke's phrasing, which was, quote, if you reach your 16th birthday. Never good when you're talking about if preceding an age, especially an age as young as 16. Rick also on his website Q&A, one of the most commonly asked questions was, what do demigods do in adulthood? And I think his answer was, um, most of them don't really make it past, say, age 30. So I haven't really thought about that. Oh, my God. Rick, come on, man. I mean, he's not wrong, but also these are kids books, Rick. <laughs> But hey, you got to rip the Band-Aid. We all need to grow up at some point. <laughs> so Percy says he knows what he needs to know, which is a really good non-answer deflecting type thing. And one of the things he cites as knowing what he needs to know is knowing who his enemies are. And Luke calls Percy a fool. Tyson defends Percy, saying that Percy is not a fool. And then he charges at Luke, which I thought was impressive. I didn't know Tyson would really have that sort of anger within him, but I'm glad he did. I'm glad he rushed forward. He just wants to protect his big brother. Which is great, and you love to see that. What a good half-brother Tyson is. I hope Percy can return the favor. Tyson goes in for a two-fisted overhead blow to Luke, which does sound quite powerful, but the bear twins stop him by each grabbing a fist, and they push him away to the ground. And this made me think that these two are certainly the upgraded version of Crab and Goyle from <laughs> Harry Potter to Draco Malfoy, because those two didn't really bring much to the table. But clearly Luke is to Percy as Draco is to Harry, and these guys are much better. They are much more equipped as henchmen. Yes. So while Luke is flaunting how strong his henchmen are, Percy butts in saying that Hermes sent the three of them to try to bring Luke over to the good side. And that really tugs at Luke's strings because he says, quote, don't even mention him. And not only is even in italics, but it's in between M dashes, which is the most intense version of italics you can possibly have. Luke is quite upset at this. I also love how Rick describes Luke as his face turned the color of pepperoni because he didn't just say he got red. That's such a specific shade of red. Mm -hmm. I just love this. I laughed audibly out loud while I was reading this. It's really good. It's a fun note, and it's also distinctly the way in which teenage Percy Jackson would write slash narrate this story because all kids love pepperoni pizza, even if they're wrong. <laughs> and I am glad that Rick put that kind of stuff in. And yeah, it's one of those colors that you can really, truly imagine. It's similar to how earlier in the book he said the fire was the color of lint, which <laughs> you don't really know what color that is, but you also exactly know what color that is at the same time. The color has a certain mood to it. Yes, 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 yes. And pepperoni in the face certainly brings about anger and inconsistent anger because pepperoni isn't just one shade. It's kind of blotchy. And when you get red in the face, it's not necessarily just 
just one shade. So I think that's right. Good call to point that out. And when he said this, this reaction that Luke had, it made me realize, okay, Hermes is not evil. This isn't some sort of grift where Hermes just runs along the beach and gets people to go on the cruise ship. Instead, it is Hermes definitely being selfish, not giving the full truth to Percy, and then trying to find a way for Percy to cross paths with Luke and maybe bring him back over to the good side towards Olympus. The gods really like using humans as their little pawns. Yes, and they really love to not tell the full story, which makes sense given their selfish interests and also works really well when you're writing a middle grade slash YA novel because they're always suspenseful and they're always mysteries and gods always have a clear selfish vested interest in not telling the full truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yes. Percy goes on to say, quote, he told us to take this boat. I thought it was just for a ride, but he sent us here to find you. He told me he won't give up on you no matter how angry you are. And this makes Luke even more upset. Angry? Give up on me? He abandoned me, Percy. I want Olympus destroyed. Every throne crushed to rubble. You tell Hermes it's going to happen too. Each time a half-blood joins us, the Olympians grow weaker and we grow stronger. He, in italics, grows stronger. And then Luke points to the gold sarcophagus when he says he in italics, and uh, that's when I realized, oh no, Kronos is in there. This is very bad. <laughs> yeah, very bad. Super duper terrifying. It makes more sense as to why it was ornately decorated with scenes of death. Feels like an evil Tartarus slash underworld vibe. And it takes Percy a second, but then he realizes it too. Luke says that Kronos is reforming, which is a very important hyphen because if he was just reforming, that would be <laughs> different because, oh, Kronos is a good guy now? Cool. It reminds me in the NBA and some other sports leagues during the offseason, it's always very important that people write re-signing to say that someone has been re-signed onto the team as opposed to resigning, which would be synonymous with retiring. And it can be very confusing when an old player either resigns or resigns. And you can't tell if the person who posted this on Reddit was correct or if they forgot how grammar works. I love how English works like this. It's a funny little language that I am so thankful that I did not have to learn because holy moly, the rules in this language make no sense at all. Yeah. It's never a good sign when me, lifelong English speaker, who even took Latin, so I should be an improved English speaker, <laughs> when I struggle, and I feel like every single week when you send me edits, I learn that I've been pronouncing words wrong my entire life. So stressful. No one should ever make fun of anyone who speaks English as a second language or a third or a fourth or a fifth because this language is like speaking on hard mode at all times. Nothing makes sense. Everything's made up. I took French for six years and... The grammar for that language is also very difficult, mm -hmm. but trying to figure out how French and English translate was a nightmare. Yeah, I had a little bit of that when I had to try to take any sort of English that I knew and read French and hear French. I, hearing it was absolutely horrible. I could not. It was so quick and the accent was tough, but I could at least read stuff when I was over there and I could kind of put stuff together. But yeah, it's certainly not easy to go between the two. It's not necessarily the most natural. So Luke says that with each recruit, more of Cronus's life force comes from the pit and into the coffin. And when Annabeth says that that's gross, Luke claps back, saying that Athena was born from Zeus's split skull, so she shouldn't talk. Which, one, that's incredibly valid and pretty funny. But two, I have to talk to Dr. Boy about this. What the hell? <laughs> what the heck is that? <laughs> When I imagined it, reading this as a kid, I imagined some kind of golden ray of light and then Athena just popping out a child. Ah. But thinking about it now is the mechanics are very confusing how that works. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's some sort of thing where Zeus fell and maybe cracked his head and blood mixed with dirt and that turned into a baby. You know, it could be something obnoxious like that. His ichor or whatever, not blood. It, literally anything is possible. I'm excited to hear what Dr. Moy has to say about this story. I know when I read about the story of Athena's birth as a kid, I think Zeus had a really bad headache and then Hephaestus took a hammer and just cracked his skull and Athena popped out. Wow. Okay. This gives me a new perspective. Anytime I have a headache, I wonder if there's a Greek goddess living inside my head that I need to free this is also a great segue because I don't remember if we talked about this in our last episode, but after recording, you showed me you dressed up as Athena for 
a different costume party or you didn't go trick-or-treating as Athena, but you had the costume. Anyway, we have lots of fun photos of you to post on the Instagram for weeks to come, basically. <laughs> was there something that we didn't get to? Oh, it was that you uh, you genuinely just started to wear your costume unironically as regular clothes. Wasn't that it? Yes. In sixth grade, after Halloween, I unironically wore the Camp Half-Blood shirt that I made to school multiple times because I just loved it that much. And I genuinely identified so strongly with Annabeth. I even wanted to be an architect because I wanted to be just like Annabeth. I was oh. like, my personality is basically Annabeth. So I might as well just adopt her interests too. But then I took geometry and I'm really bad with shapes and triangles especially. So that dream went down the drain. <laughs> that is fantastic. I've certainly done that before where I've gotten something for a costume and then worn it elsewhere. And I feel like that is the best type of Halloween outfit that you can get is do something where you repurpose it into clothes or vice versa, where you find clothes that you can work into a costume. My buddy Tim does some really great tailored work, I guess is the word. I have no idea. He can sew stuff good is what I'm trying to say. And he made me a full outfit of matching shorts, shirt, belt, and tie. And the shirt's a button-down shirt. So if I wear it, it looks like I'm wearing a male romper, but it's all individual pieces. And I really like it. It's certainly very campy, so I don't get to wear it all of the time. But one time for Halloween, I just wore that. And then Kelly took a paint roller type thing and then some of the extra fabric that Tim had and taped it to the paint roller and then wore stuff where it looked like she was applying wallpaper. So I was wallpaper and she was someone applying the wallpaper and then she just got to roll her paint roller up and down different parts of my clothes all night. And it was a great time. That is amazing. And I'm picturing this outfit to be violently purple and uh, I can only picture it that way. Though that would be great. He made it mint green and it's truly fantastic. I believe there's an old photo of it Maybe the only time I've done an Instagram boomerang in my life because it was Kelly rolling up and down so it looked cool. I, I think that's on my personal Instagram. But it's great. And I love the outfit quite a bit. I need to wear it more at garden parties and rooftop brunches, you know, when it's acceptable to wear male rompers. So the evil plan of Luke and his cohorts is to piece together a new body for Kronos. And it's going to be a Hephaestus-style work, which sounds... Absolutely terrifying. I don't know if he's going to be part robot, part human, feels very Terminator-y. Whatever it is, I am already scared for what Return of Kronos looks like. It cannot be good. Knowing how it turns out, I wonder how the plan changed over time because that's never discussed. Ooh, okay. I'm intrigued to see what this new Kronos looks like. I have very low hopes for it not being terrifying. It's going to be scary as hell. Nightmare fuel for sure. So Luke again tries to pitch bringing them onto his team. He says that they have sponsors so rich that Sally will never have to work again. And he tells Percy that he can have power and fame. And he tells Annabeth, you can be an architect and build monuments to the lords of the next age, which feels like not a great sell. Sally can have so many riches, she'll never have to work. <laughs> Percy can have power and fame. Annabeth, you can have a job and you can do work for us. <laughs> what a horrible sales pitch. Yes. My gosh. Come on, Luke. <laughs> you can be employed while <laughs> Percy, you get to just relax. You and your mom can just chill, Percy. Annabeth, you're going to have to work and you don't get to make whatever you want. You can make a shrine to the people who have employed you. This is very much just a regular job, Luke. You have not sold this very well. You're not doing her any favors. And we will not pay you. Right. Yeah. The hours are going to be really bad. The payment can't be good, which unfortunately does hold true to the architecture world because I have seen the stuff that Kelly's had to go through and it's not great. Thankfully, she is now in a better role where she's doing architectural consultant work, where she's still doing all the stuff of an architect, but she's getting paid much better rates and she has better benefits, which is good for me because self-employed boy over here doesn't get anything. So marrying Kelly and getting her benefits is A plus for me. <laughs> Annabeth is very upset at this offer, doesn't tell Luke to go to hell, but tells him to go to Tartarus, which is perfect. I love when they do the Greek stuff instead of curses. 
Fantastic. Luke sighs and says, a shame. And then he pushes a button on a remote that opens a door in the storeroom and two glassy-eyed, uniform, mortal crew members with nightsticks enter. And Luke tells these security guards that these three are stowaways. And he tells Aureus that it's time to feed the Ethiopian Draken and implies that our trio is going to be lunch, which doesn't sound great. And also shout out to autocorrect in my notes for turning Ethiopian Dracon into Ethiopian Dragon, which was my initial guess anyway. <laughs> now, Agarius wants to join Aureus because he doesn't trust Aureus, he worries that Aureus won't be able to handle Tyson alone, but Luke dismisses the thought and tells Agrius to stay back so that they can discuss, quote, important matters, which, okay, Luke, I get that you're an evil villain, but no one who actually has important matters to discuss says we have important matters to discuss. It feels like you're trying to lie about work that you have to do when you really don't have anything to do. I think also Luke is really manipulative with Agrius and Aureus. They're twin brothers, but he always separates them so they can't collude against him. Ooh, yeah, yeah. One of those, if we combined our power, we could overthrow the person. Very much the hopper from A Bug's Life situation where small but many in numbers can overthrow one mean grasshopper. I'm now realizing that movie came out probably before you were born and we're going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> It is my favorite Pixar movie, though. Whoa, that's a hot take. I like it, though. It's a good one. I think it's wildly underrated. It's very fun. And speaking of underrated, I did recently see Turning Red. Oh, that is actually my favorite. It's so good. I don't know if it is the best Pixar movie in terms of cinema, but in terms of most enjoyment I had while watching a Pixar movie, it is really up there, if not number one. I laughed so many times. It's truly hilarious, and I love how high energy it is. Cannot recommend it enough. And anyone who says that they don't like it, I, I don't necessarily distrust anyone who says it's not in the top, but if any human said, eh, I saw Turning Red and I didn't like it that much, I would not trust that person at all. It's such a fun movie. It is impossible not to like. Also, as someone who is the child of immigrant parents from China, mm -hmm. very relatable, very relatable. I was sobbing at the end, uncontrollably sitting in my Airbnb over spring break in the dark, <laughs> uncontrollably sobbing because it was just so good. And I'm glad that Disney is making more movies like this. That's great. Even though I am a white man of white parents from suburban New Jersey who's never had a period before, I, you know, I still was like, I'm glad this movie exists, even if I cannot relate to any of the particular things that it's making references to. But I do appreciate a good boy band. Shout out to NSYNC of my youth, which I was ashamed of loving so much until I grew old enough. And shout out to me now, who loves BTS. They're great and perfect. And if you're not listening to BTS, I've got something for you to do when you finish this episode. So as Agrius alluded to, this is a horrible plan for them to be split up. Because not long after the three go with Aureus, Tyson just sends Aureus flying 30 feet with a smack. That's a lot of feet. And Aureus lands in the swimming pool, which causes the zombie kids to say, Ah, we, we are, are not, not having, having a blast, blast in, in the, the pool. pool. They do have exclamation points this time, but I am still imagining more monotony, very much like the robot guy Alpha from Power Rangers. Just, ah, we are not having a blast in the pool. So Annabeth takes care of one security guard, but the other does get to the alarm. So our team runs for a lifeboat. Monsters and security zombies are approaching. The Greek armor guy from before slips in a puddle of pina colada, which is great. And it did make me think that in this rendition, when they do the show and they do this, this could be a great usage of putting a song that doesn't necessarily fit over an action scene. And if you put Escape, the song that's if you like pina colada over him slipping and stumbling and in slow motion the team is trying to get away from all of these monsters and zombies this could be very fun absolutely so tyson then hits away a leaping hellhound with a fire extinguisher which is an incredible move percy then uses riptide to slash arrows away that were fired at them by bow and arrow clad folks and then they get into the lifeboat Percy cuts the ropes with Riptide and they start to free fall down towards the ocean. And that's the end of chapter nine. And what do you know? It's halfway through the episode. So this is a perfect time for us to take a break towards the sea of sponsors while our trio falls downwards towards the sea of monsters. Ho, 
Hello and welcome to the Sea of Sponsors. If you're listening to this and thinking, wow, Mike's microphone quality sounds really good. Maybe he's done traveling. Maybe he's back in the studio. Well, he's back in a studio, but he's not back in New York. I'm here in Seattle, Washington, staying with Lauren Shippen and Brandon Grugel. Brandon was kind enough to let me use his very nice recording studio, so that's why I sound nice, but I'm still on the road. Wee! <laughs> But it's okay, because we're here in the Sea of Sponsors. We've got fun stuff to talk about. First off, something that I will be doing this week is going into thenewstolympian.com and editing each episode page so that we have updated transcripts for the episodes. If you ever want to read transcripts along with listening to the episode, or if you know someone where transcripts would help them out, I have transcripts for every episode. Try to get them up in a timely manner, trying to be better about it. But yeah, underneath each individual episode's page, there will be a link at the bottom, which will take you to a Google Doc where you can check out the transcripts if that's something that you would like. Speaking of liking things, I very much like that people support the show on Patreon. They make my life a lot easier and a little less hectic, especially because I'm coming fresh off a tax season, which is always super fun as an independent creator. But I very much appreciate all the folks who have supported the show at thenewstolympian.com slash Patreon. It's really nice to give me a little bit of a sense of security, and I hope you all enjoy the bonus content that you get for supporting it, whether that is digital stuff like bonus episodes, bonus audio, or physical things like pins and stickers. It's a fun time over there. Check it out. But I'd like to give a shout out to the newest members of our team over at thenewstolympian.com slash Patreon. So shout out to our newest God tier patrons, Adina J and Sam M. And shout out to our newest demigod tier patrons, Sam Howell, Kara Alexis, Hester Pullman, Riley Stray, and Catherine Dolmans. Thank you all so much for your support. May Aries help you whenever you are playing War the Card Game to win. Also, I want to thank Multitude for having us as a part of the collective. I mentioned Brandon Grugel earlier. I'm recording it from his studio. Brandon Grugel is one of the members of the D&D podcast that Multitude has called Join the Party that you might love. It's an actual play podcast with tangible worlds, genre-pushing storytelling, and collaborators making each other laugh each week. If you don't know where to start, there is campaign number one, which is the party campaign. It's your classic high fantasy gameplay. But if you're not a big Dungeons and Slash or Dragons type person, you can listen to campaign two, the Join campaign which has D&D mechanics, but it's set in a modern superhero-centric setting. It's a good time. You can listen to it by searching for Join the Party wherever you get your podcasts or going to jointhepartypod.com. And finally, before we wrap up here, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of these ads will be read by me. Others of them won't. The ones that are not read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in Turkey, don't be surprised if you hear a Turkish ad. And once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of The Newest Olympian. For six generations, the Jones family has been providing high-quality meats. And now, we're providing treats for the best member of your family, man's best friend, a.k.a. the goodest boys and girls. Jones Natural Shoes makes bones and treats that are sure to be savored by your dog and are made from the best natural ingredients available. Our flavorful chews are made from natural animal parts and will have your puppy drooling with happiness. From treats like sticks and chews to savory bones and patties, we've got you covered for finding the perfect reward for that special pup in your life. Jones Natural Chews come in all sizes, so make sure to choose the right treat for your pup. And remember, it's important to be supervising your pup when they're enjoying their treats to keep your puppy safe. Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. Or visit jonesnaturalchews.com to get started with our store locator tool. That's Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. And we are back. So chapter 10 now, we hitch a ride with dead Confederates. And what I wrote in my notes here was, uh, I really hope that the word Confederates is used in a different way than capital C Confederates that I know from, I was going to say history class, but let's be honest, history class did not teach me how bad the Confederacy was. And for anyone out there that thinks Confederate flags are cool, no, they're not. They're awful. Get rid of all of them. Also, the Confederacy lasted less time than the Beatles, like less than seven years. So you don't get to talk about heritage for something that wasn't even a decade. Did the Beatles really only stay together for seven years? I think they at least made albums for seven years. So they might have been together before, but I think from their first at least U.S. release, I think it was seven years, which is 
truly astonishing that they put out that much great music in such a short span of time. But also, the Confederacy sucks and is terrible. And if this makes you leave a one-star review, good riddance. Because if you don't hate racism, I do not want you listening to this podcast. Why do they still produce flags? I don't understand. Unfortunately, Sherry, there's a lot of racist people out there. And they love to pretend that this flag is anything other than that. And uh, one-star review is incoming, but let's go. We're going to talk about a book. Oh, I hate when he talks about politics for no reason. (laughs) So my true guess here for what Confederates was... It turns out to not be super wrong, reading my guess back, but I wrote, is it some sort of outcasts from Olympus? So not super wrong, but I was not correct. So while they're falling, Percy asks for the thermos. Annabeth is confused. Tyson knows what's up. So he grabs the thermos, hands it to Percy, and Percy uncaps it slightly, which turns their straight free fall downward into a 45-degree falling with style, to quote Buzz Lightyear. And narrator Percy says, quote, the wind seemed to laugh as it shot out from the thermos like it was glad to be free. And I don't know if the wind is going to become a character, but I do think that this is a fun note regardless. I'm not going to say anything. Mm. I know we've had Zephyr the West Wind mentioned before. So if the wind becomes some sort of divine being that we get to meet, that'd be very interesting. So they skid along the water and they get far enough away from the Princess Andromeda where they are out of weapons range. They then try to iris message Chiron, but the service is spotty. They get Chiron's face to show up, but there is a strobe light flashing and rock music playing like he's at some sort of discotheque. And they are able to tell Chiron everything, but they are not sure how much he is hearing. Chiron tries to warn them about something, but his relatives are so loud that they can't make out what he's saying. And at one point, narrator Percy says that they are whooping it up like Comanche warriors. Do you know what that is? It was made as a very calm reference, and I've never seen that word before. I also have never seen a word like this. I can only assume it's something Greek. Well, according to Google, it is Native American. It says the Comanche were noted as fierce warriors who fought vigorously for their homeland of Comancheria. So Google cuts it off after it says, however, the massive population, dot, dot, dot. So uh, I think we all know where that one ends. But yeah, they are a Native American tribe that was in what is now Texas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. I guess this makes sense for Rick being from Texas. Yeah, I guess that would explain it. He did say whooping it up, though, which feels more like a stereotypical Native American thing, unless the Comanche actually did do that. But I don't know enough about the Comanche, and I wish I did. I wish my history class actually taught me more about the Native Americans instead of yada yada, we made the states, yada yada, other people live here, yada yada, independence. So Chiron tells Annabeth that she shouldn't have let Percy leave camp, which I think is very unfair because Chiron was certainly speaking in Chiron doublespeak, where he was certainly implying that they should for sure leave camp. So I don't like that he called out Annabeth for this, but he goes on to say, but if you do get the fleece and then it says inaudible and then Miami, and then he goes on to say, I'll try to keep watch. So I'm assuming the inaudible is implying get the fleece and bring it to Miami and then they'll do something in Miami, like go to a pitbull concert or something, but at least they have the task, get the fleece, and a potential destination, go back to Miami. So after an hour, they find land, and it is a beach with high-rise hotels. Annabeth points out that it is Virginia Beach, and she's shocked at how far they were able to travel overnight while inside the Princess Andromeda. And Percy knows that it's 538 nautical miles away, but he doesn't know how he knows that, and I immediately wrote in my notes, uh, your dad is the god of the sea. (laughs) And then Annabeth kind of picks up on this as well, asking Percy, what's our position? And then he just blurts out 36 degrees, 44 minutes north, 76 degrees, two minutes west. So he's basically a human compass. And then Annabeth points out to Percy, it's because of your dad being Poseidon. And it's so cool. So in italics. And I like this because I like Annabeth thinking that Percy is cool because (laughs) I want them to fall in love and be together forever. When we talked last time, did you mention something about you having a connection to Virginia Beach or am I making that up? I've been there on vacation, but my connection is more to... What's it like? I don't remember. I went when I was like five, maybe younger. (laughs) First beach vacation. Gotcha, gotcha. What were you saying your connection is to though? Maryland, Mm. which is upcoming. Maryland on the horizon. So Tyson alerts them that a boat is approaching them and it's a Coast Guard boat from earlier that did pass them, but apparently turned around because it was intrigued by, you know, a lifeboat traveling at the speed of a motorboat. (laughs) 
Percy says that the Coast Guard is going to ask way too many questions if they get caught. So Annabeth says, go into Chesapeake Bay, and she knows a hiding spot. Is Chesapeake Bay still in Florida, or is this in Maryland? This is in Maryland. Okay. Do you have a connection to Chesapeake Bay? I am from Baltimore, so I grew up in Maryland, but... I like the description of Percy saying he could feel the saltwater changing to freshwater because the only thing I remember we learned about the Chesapeake Bay is that it's a brackish, so it's where saltwater and freshwater mix. And I don't know, I thought that fact was really cool as a kid, so it's just something that stuck in my memory. That is very cool. That's kind of like the fun fact where I think the East River is not actually a river. I think it's a estuary or something because it doesn't have an outlet or, or whatever it is. That's one of those things where something is a, a misnomer. But no, Baltimore is a good time. I used to go to Baltimore pretty frequently when I lived in New Jersey because my dad and I are huge New York Yankees fans. And one of his coworkers is a big Baltimore Orioles fan. And he would get season tickets to the Orioles. And anytime that they were playing the Yankees, he would offer my dad the tickets because my dad's coworker would go to all these other games. You know, why don't you go to the games when they're playing your favorite team? Because going down to Baltimore takes just about as long as driving up to New York City with traffic from central New Jersey. So we had a couple different times where we would go to Camden Yards, watch a game, go to, is it the aquarium that's like right on the water, right? Yeah. So the Baltimore Aquarium is really cool. There's a level of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. I forget which game it is, but one of them, I think there's a Baltimore level. So yeah, Baltimore is a good time. I think I went there on a field trip once. <laughs> good town, that Baltimore. Yeah. Also, just a little bit later, he describes the weather and how the air was muggy and hot. That is a very good description of Maryland summers. 100% humidity. You cannot feel yourself sweating. It's horrible. Every year at summer camp, we'd be sitting outside during I don't want to call it mandatory recess, but it was kind of mandatory recess where we would just sit <laughs> and like be wet. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. As someone that lived in Texas for a decade, let me tell you, I am well versed in humidity and boy, oh boy, do I hate it. My gosh, it's the worst. So Percy opens the thermos a little bit more and they leave the Coast Guard boat absolutely in the dust and they make their way into a river. So Percy feels like he is coming off a sugar high when the saltwater switches to freshwater, which I think is a pretty fun description. They go into a swampy area, they get off the boat, and they cover the boat, and they make their way on land. Tyson is getting absolutely wrecked by mosquitoes. Is that also true to form for Chesapeake Bay? Absolutely. It is. I guess it's just the swampiness of it, but every summer I would get bitten all over my legs. I think my blood just happens to taste good to mosquitoes because... I get the most bug bites out of anyone in my family, and it's always a terrible experience, just itching all the time. I am the same. It's got to be something. Maybe it's our blood type. Are you O? What? I'm, yes, I, I think I'm O positive. Oh, my God. That's the like not cool O one, right? That's like not the universal one. Yeah. I think that's what I am, too. Maybe it's O positive blood. Maybe mosquitoes <laughs> love it. <laughs> but yes, I also get absolutely wrecked by them to where I'm basically like a human citronella candle Except if I'm sitting in a group of friends and it's in a place like Houston, Texas, where mosquitoes are rampant, they will all bite me and no one else, which is nice for everyone else involved and terrible for me. So Texas summers were not an easy time for Mike Schubert. It was not a very fun experience. <laughs> so Tyson getting wrecked by mosquitoes, he says, not a good place, which... I feel you, bud. It was something that I noticed when I moved to Texas from New Jersey. Not a very mosquito-heavy place. Not a very humid location. I moved in July of 2006. So I went in the worst time for mosquitoes and got absolutely wrecked. And it was bad. And I remember at one point there was bug trucks that would come around. I don't know if they did this in Baltimore. Just big pickup trucks with some sort of machine in the bed that would just shoot out some sort of spray that would kill mosquitoes. And my mom, who is, a you know, conscious of the environment and health and all this stuff, when she saw this happening around our little neighborhood in suburban Houston, she was worried. And she thought, oh, my God, they're just spraying this chemical mist into the air. Do we know even what they're putting out into the air? And she tried to look into it and talk with, I don't know, other parents in town. And literally every other parent was like, I don't care what is in the air. <laughs> if it kills mosquitoes, that's fine. <laughs> 
I've never heard of a bug truck. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a thing where it's just like a pickup truck with some sort of machine in the back that just sprays and then they just drive through the town. Like, I think it's an old concept where some of my friends' parents would say, oh, yeah, we used to ride our bikes in the midst of it. You know, just like not knowing that it's probably terrible. I'm sure out in the air it's fine, but if you're just constantly breathing it in, it cannot be good for you. No. Yeah, it didn't take long for my mom. This was very much the first week we moved. And then I think after a month of Texas summer, soon realized I also hate mosquitoes with every fiber of my being. Go ahead, bug truck. Spray to your heart's desire. (laughs) Shout out to Barb, who's definitely listening to this podcast. I love you, mom. You're the best. So Annabeth brings them to a camouflaged shelter. It's like a hut but it's made out of plants and it is stocked with sleeping bags, blankets, a cooler and a kerosene lamp. And it also has demigod stuff too, such as bronze javelin tips, a quiver of arrows, a sword and ambrosia. And bronze javelin tips just made me think that if you did some sort of Percy Jackson themed party, that would be a great dessert. If you made some sort of conical shaped brownie and then you dipped it in caramel or something you could do that bronze javelin tips and i think that that would be scrumptious and everyone can please steal this idea Ooh, that sounds good right 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 right. it's a shame that i am so bad at baking because i cannot make this for myself i'll have to find someone who's good and then mention it and be like wouldn't this be such a cool idea if we did this oh my god uh but what if i feel like this would be cool if you put them on skewers they'd be like yeah. little mini javelins Ooh, or if you did something like chocolate dipped pretzels or something that could be fun yeah because then they'd look like a full-on javelin so percy gets a sense that this place has been vacant for a while he's impressed by this structure and he asks annabeth if she made it herself and she says that she did but also with the help of thalia and luke which i was very torn by part of that was very cool but then also part of that was very sad Narrator Percy mentions that whenever Annabeth talks about her history with Luke and Thalia, he gets, quote, I don't know, uncomfortable? No, that's not the word. The word was jealous. I like Narrator Percy calling out himself immediately. Fantastic. Wonderful awareness from Narrator Percy here. Also very cute. It's very cute, and I like that he's admitting his jealousy because I'm now fully fledged on Percibeth being a thing. So Percy asks if Luke will know their location, and Annabeth says no, because they made dozens of these hideouts. And then she says some sort of line of, I don't think he even cares where we are, so she's clearly very upset and doesn't want to talk. So Percy leaves her alone to unpack, and then he asks Tyson if he can go out and scout for, quote, a wilderness convenience store or something, which, (laughs) yep, that's going to totally be a thing. I thought foolishly. (laughs) Percy instructs Tyson to get some sort of snacks like powdered donuts. And then Tyson earnestly replies, powdered donuts. I will look for powdered donuts in the wilderness. Here, donuts. (laughs) How does he keep getting better? It's impossible. No one can be this good. I love it so much. What's unfortunate is how the audiobook narrator narrates Tyson. I really am not a fan of his Tyson voice. But Tyson himself... His lines are so iconic. Does he give Tyson a Patrick Starr type voice where he tries to make him sound unintelligent? Yeah, kind of. See, that sucks because I never picture Tyson having a voice of someone that's unintelligent or dopey or whatever you want to say. I just imagined he's very direct and says stuff without necessarily inflection but is very much just matter of fact speaking and that's a shame that the narrator of the audiobooks would take that artistic liberty because i never got that impression from the way rick wrote it yeah i think it also just reduces tyson a lot i just wasn't a fan of that at all yeah tyson's young that doesn't mean he's not smart or useful so to paint him as this person who really can't contribute to the team or not as up to speed mentally as the other two, I think that that's disappointing for sure. So once Tyson leaves, Percy sits down next to Annabeth and says he's sorry that they ran into Luke and that Percy was kind of the reason that they did run into Luke. Annabeth says it's not your fault, and I appreciate both of these actions. I appreciate the apology from Percy, and I appreciate Annabeth recognizing that this wasn't really Percy's fault. He had no idea. Hermes didn't tell him. How was he going to know? Neither Percy nor Annabeth like how easily Luke let them get away, and they're worried about some things that Luke said, including a gamble and taking the bait. So it makes me wonder, am I giving Luke too much credit, or did he separate the twins so that all of this would happen? I don't know how much credit I should give new villain Luke, who seems more villainous, but is he this crafty? 
we'll just have to see. I wonder how much Kronos is pulling the strings versus Luke. Is Kronos affected by some of his body being in a coffin? Is he in a downloading state or is he like a computer that's got a bunch of CPUs slash RAM where it can do multiple things at the same time? Unclear. (laughs) How good is Kronos at multitasking? (laughs) So Annabeth fiddles with her knife and guesses that maybe Luke wants them to do the hard work to get the fleece and then he'll just steal it from them afterwards. But she can't get over the fact that he would poison the tree. And Percy asks what Luke meant by saying that Thalia would be on his side. Annabeth says he's wrong. And Percy points out to her that she doesn't sound so sure. And that makes Annabeth look mad. And narrator Percy says, "Eh, I wish I hadn't brought this up while she had her (laughs) knife in her hand. (laughs) I can picture this scene so well. Oh, yes. It is such great writing in terms of narration and everything else that Rick put into it because you can really, really picture this scene. It's really nice. So Annabeth then says, Percy, you know who you remind me of most? Thalia. You guys are so much alike it's scary. I mean, either you would have been best friends or you would have strangled each other, (laughs) which is certainly a vibe I have with a lot of my best friends. I can definitely see this dynamic. Percy then says, let's go with best friends. And Annabeth (laughs) says, Thalia got angry with her dad sometimes. So do you. Would you turn turn against Olympus because of that? Percy says no, and Annabeth says, okay then, neither would she. Luke's wrong. So, this goes back to my prediction when you asked me earlier. I think that's the case. I think that Thalia might not fully approve of everything that Zeus does, but I think that Luke is probably still wrong in trying to speak on her behalf. I feel like she's going to come out of the tree and then immediately say, I hate Luke. All my homies hate Luke. Not a fan of Luke. Okay. It also makes me wonder, because I am fully big on Thalia's coming back from the tree. I wonder if she is going to know what has happened or if it's going to be like she fell asleep or was in a coma or whatever and no time passed. I'm very much intrigued to see if she can tell or if she says, yeah, I could see through the acorns. Ah." Hmm. I love the noncommittal noises. So Percy wants to ask about the 16th birthday aspect of the prophecy, but he figures that Annabeth won't tell him. So instead, he asks about Luke's Cyclops comment, the whole you of all people thing that he said. And Annabeth says that it is about the real reason Thalia died. Hmm. She starts to say you can never trust a Cyclops, Percy. Six years ago, on the night Grover was leading us to Half-Blood Hill, and then, of course, Tyson enters with powdered donuts, which is classic Rick, to cut us short right before we can learn something. What are you going to do? It's an easy way to get suspense in there. I understand what you're doing here, Rick. Also, Tyson walking in with powdered donuts at this moment is comedy gold in my mind. Truly hilarious. I was not expecting him to come back so quickly and also to have completed his mission. It's truly fantastic. And it feels like a character trait Tyson might have. I would not be surprised if in the future, whenever Percy and Annabeth are about to have their first kiss, that Tyson completely ruins it by entering the room that they're in. And then they have to awkwardly shuffle away. And then he asks, what are you doing? And then the two of them go, oh, nothing. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he says something like, your lips were really close together. (laughs) Then Percy's like, um, nothing. (laughs) Yeah, Percy's going to have no poker face whenever that happens. It's going to be great. Or if Grover is the first person that picks up on Percy having feelings for Annabeth, Percy's not going to be able to keep that in. And I'm very, very much looking forward to it. The other thing I'm realizing here is that when you asked me earlier in the episode about these two things and I made these cool predictions, it was just me referencing stuff that you learned in chapter 10. So no credit (laughs) to me for anything I said earlier in this episode. Clearly, there was a reason why I had those inclinations, and it's because the book tells you them in chapter 10. Reading comprehension. Yay! Annabeth is floored. She asks Tyson, where did you get those? Tyson says, 50 feet away. There is a place called Monster Donut Shop. And immediately, nope, 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 no, 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 nope. Not a good name. Get the hell out of there. So they go to look, and it is a brand new donut store in the middle of the woods. There is one employee behind the counter, and there's no cars around. Annabeth says it shouldn't be here, and Percy, like a buffoon, thinks that it is fine. He says they're a chain that exists in New York. This is false. I've never seen this before. I do not think this is a real chain. I've also never seen them in Baltimore. Yeah, maybe if this was a Krispy Kreme, but maybe they couldn't get the naming rights to Krispy Kreme. 
Annabeth asks Percy if he finds it fishy that it popped up immediately after Percy sent Tyson to get donuts. And Annabeth says it could be a nest, which explains how some chains pop up so quickly. They have their power tied to a monster. And I like this theory because chains do pop up very quickly. And I also now like to have a headcanon that Chick-fil-A, an evil company run by (laughs) evil people, is actually tied to some sort of monster. This is the best explanation for something in the real world that Rick has come up with. I just love it so much. I think it is second only to the Bermuda Triangle yes. in terms of explaining <laughs> via Greek how something works. But yeah, it's pretty funny because chains do pop up alarmingly quick, especially in New York. There have been some stuff really coming in quickly when places closed down over the past couple of years. And there's certainly a fair share of chains. Sometimes it's cool. Sometimes it's Domino's Pizza, which why does any Domino's Pizza exist in New York City? What are you doing? You can get... <laughs> Dollar slices, which are way better and cheaper and faster. I do not understand any human being that orders Domino's pizza in New York City. There's even like Domino's in Italy sometime. What are we doing? How do those make money? By tourists. Yeah, I mean, but again, you're in the pizza place. How do you get Domino's? (laughs) So apparently some Hermes kids figured out how to do this in the 50s, and Edbeth starts to say they breed, but then she freezes and instructs the rest of the team to not make any sudden movements. PJ slowly turns, and he sees something the size of a rhino moving through the trees. And very quickly we learn that it is a hydra with seven heads, and each neck has a bib that says, quote, I'm a monster donut kid. <laughs> I misread this the first time I read it, and now the image that I misconstrued is permanently in my brain. I thought that I'm a monster donut kid was a t-shirt, and Mm. the way I imagined the Hydra was Mike Wazowski's body, but with seven little snaky head things. I love this. This is great. That's absolutely fantastic. The other thing that this made me think of, we're recording this on March 30th, and I believe two days ago, Becky Riordan, the wife of Rick, she tweeted out, someone asked about Percy Jackson merchandise, and she put Disney on blast saying, I'm still waiting for Disney to do something with their merchandising license, but until then, and then she referenced some other place where you could get some other stuff that is Percy Jackson inspired, but not directly Percy Jackson merch. Disney is truly slipping because if you could get little bibs for your kids that say, I'm a monster donut kid, come on. (laughs) Kelly and I, we got our nephew a set of Pixar onesies and one makes him look like Nemo. One makes him look like Jack-Jack from The Incredibles. They're all great. And to be able to get this for our nephew or any other future niece, nephew, kid that we have, come on. It's so good. It would be so good. Disney needs to hire better merch people. They really do. I mean, they do make some good merch, but the fact that they haven't made a whole bunch of Percy Jackson stuff, especially maybe they'll get on it with the show coming out, but come on, the opportunity is right there. I recently walked past the Harry Potter store in New York City. Boo, didn't care, couldn't care less. Percy Jackson store in New York City? Sign me the absolute hell up, especially if they make the store somewhere near the Empire State Building. Come on, it's right there. The other thing that I found interesting when we learned that it was the Hydra is that the size of a rhino for the Hydra feels kind of small, doesn't it? I always imagine the Hydra to be enormous, and a rhino is big, but not laughably large. Yeah, I feel like Hydras should be giant sea creatures. Yeah, maybe the body was the size of the rhino, and then the heads go beyond rhino. Maybe it was something like that, but I was surprised to hear that it was Hydra when it said rhino-sized shadow. Now, A problem is that two of the Hydra heads have some ripped yellow canvas in their mouth, so clearly they have dug through the team's stuff. Tyson is scared, understandably so. He's trembling, and he takes a step backwards, and he steps on a twig, and he snaps it, and all seven heads turn to look at the three of them immediately. And this, again, is a scene that I could instantly picture, and it was very scary. Yes, very Monsters, Inc. Mm, Oh, yeah, 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 like if Celia was evil, Mm -hmm. but all of the heads were Randall. I like that we're just rewriting this as all Monsters, Inc. everything. (laughs) (laughs) So Annabeth, much like John Mulaney in that one bit, yells, SCATTER! And they all (laughs) run away. (laughs) 
One Hydra head spits acid at Percy. Percy saves Tyson from a Hydra head lunge. He runs away from the other two and he uncaps Riptide to try to draw the Hydra's attention away from them. And it works because of the celestial bronze. One of the heads snaps towards Percy and he immediately just instinctively swipes at it before Annabeth can successfully dissuade him by yelling no. And uh oh. Here's what we all know. Two heads start to grow out of the stump. And Annabeth tells him that he just opened another monster donut shop somewhere. And Percy goes, quote, I'm about to die and you're worried about that? How do we kill it? Which is perfect, perfect response. Absolutely great. I love their banter. It's so good. Annabeth says fire, which helps Percy remember, ah, right. The story of the Hydra is that Hercules got the heads to stop growing if he burned the stumps with fire before they could regrow. The problem is they don't have any fire. So a Hydra head knocks Annabeth to the ground, which causes Tyson to yell, no hitting my friends, which is Great. That's so good. I love that Tyson loves Annabeth, even if she is a bit standoffish towards him. Tyson starts smacking one of the heads, but Percy knows that he can't hold it off forever. The three of them start to slowly retreat, and then they hear a noise that sounds like a heartbeat behind them in the distance. And Tyson identifies it as a steam engine, and a familiar woman's voice from behind them yells, quote, There! Prepare the 32-pounder. And then Percy notes that if this is who he thinks it is, they have two villains or nemesis. I forget the exact wording. They have two people to worry about. So I was trying to think of women villains, and Medusa wouldn't make sense because of what they did to her. So I thought, is it the Echidna trying to get the Hydra as a monster pet? I was (laughs) very wrong. A gravelly voice of a man says, quote, they're too close, referring to R3. And she says, damn the heroes, full steam ahead. And then I thought, okay, is this person hunting the Hydra? So she commands this man or her crew, whoever, to fire the cannons. Annabeth successfully gets the team to duck. The cannon explodes the Hydra into a bunch of green goo. And then Tyson notes that this sound is coming from a steamship. And I realize, oh, this is from the cover of my very legal PDF. The cover of my book is the first edition, which has a boat that looks more like a pirate ship. And then the cover of my very legal PDF certainly has this steamship on it. So that clears up some confusion because I I, at first, when I saw these two covers, thought, well, these are very different takes on the same boat, but maybe (laughs) they are different boats. So then we get a description of the boat from narrator Percy, quote, It rode low in the water like a submarine, its deck plated with iron. In the middle was a trapezoid-shaped casemate with slats on each side for cannons. A flag waved from the top, a wild boar, and then I thought, oh, it's Clarice! A wild boar and spear on a blood-red field. Lining the deck were zombies in gray uniforms, dead soldiers with shimmering faces that only partially covered their skulls, like the ghouls I'd seen in the underworld guarding Hades. Palace. I was very surprised that this was Clarice, but it kind of makes sense given that her chariot from before had skeleton horses. So I'm guessing we're going to learn more about why Ares' cabin has some sort of connection with the undead. I guess Ares is the god of war and stuff, so maybe that's how it falls into play. But Percy notes that it is an ironclad Civil War battle cruiser. Its name reads that it is the CSS Birmingham, and it is Clarice who says, losers, uh, but I suppose I have to rescue you. Come aboard. And I love this because this is the beginning of Clarice's redemption arc, and this is the end of chapter 10, and also the end of this episode of The Newest Olympian. Any thoughts about the Clarice reveal? I feel like I was expecting it. I guess I don't really remember what I was thinking when I first read this when I was 10. Mm -hmm. But she was the one that was given the quest by Tantalus. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't doing as much critical thinking when I read the books (laughs) and predicting. So I didn't really think about Echidna or other characters in the past. But I'm excited for the next chapter. I am as well. I just wasn't expecting Clarice to come back so quickly, but I'm glad she's back. I think this will be a fun dynamic to have. I'm very intrigued to learn about this ship that reminds me of the boat from It's called Sahara. It's this really bad Matthew McConaughey movie that Kelly had me watch once with her family because it was one of the DVDs they used to watch in their minivan all the time growing up. It was not good, but I think it did have one of these old school boats in it. But 
I'm excited to learn about the boat. I'm excited to learn more about what Clarice has been up to. I honestly forgot that she was going on the quest. These books are just so engrossing that after reading one chapter, I completely just lose track of all the people that I should be keeping track of. So (laughs) I was very much taken by surprise that she is here, but I'm glad she's here. And I'm also glad we're able to do this episode, Sherry. This was such a fun time. Yeah, this was so much fun. If people want to find you doing stuff on the internet... Where can they find you? Yeah, so you can find me on the internet editing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And you can also find me on TikTok at Azula the Cheez-It. My videos are kind of all over the place, but it's a fun time. Yeah, that's where you can find me. Fantastic. You can also find pictures of young Sherry on the TNO Instagram at New Olympian on Instagram. But Sherry, thank you again for joining listeners. Thanks for listening. And until next time, as we begin to board the CSS Birmingham, I'll pursue you later. Or I guess I'll I'll pursue CSS Birmingham <laughs> you later. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Deuce Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schuber. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Campamanes and Brandon Grugel. And the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. If you are all caught up in the show and you want some more, you can get some more by going to thenewstolympian.com slash Patreon. You'll get access to loads of bonus episodes, bonus audio, all the old Potterless stuff, whole bunch of fun things at thenewstolympian.com slash Patreon. And speaking of that Patreon, I want to give a huge shout out to our producer-level patrons. Lada Bartova, Kelsey Gillespie, The Damn Steam Nuggets, Emma Cooey, Vicky Garcia, Ellie Hoskovchova, Veronica Bartova, Haley Hastings, Robin Garcia, Frida Vickstrom, Megan Moon, Tough Bayfong, Moo Moo Productions, Don't Call Me Nymphadora, Olivia Y, Craig McRoberts, Taylor Payne, Giselle Salvador, Minka Dreesen, Can't I Seaweed Brain, Matt Barger, Peter Johnson, The Twins, Sabrina Balsiger, Bony Pony, Getting Stoned with Smelly Gabe, Heather McMillan, Casey Canales, Polly Burge, Nikki Harris, Tatiana Schmidt, Sandra Rose, Bridget Lowry, Josh Sayer, Percy Blue, Josh Wilkie, Abby Ryan, Shannon Yvonne's Aguilar, Wise Girl, Alpacas Are Hope, Milo TZ, Roxas1912, Rafaela, Ashton Gabrielson, Cara Marin, Colby, Marco Redhouse, Falcon, Joey James, Christopher William Boucher, Justin Lux, Caden Max, Sam Sam Ruby, Carly Allen, Riley Kitas, Mary Kelly, Audra McKenzie, Mrs. O'Leary, Marina Foose, and Erin Wood. If you want to follow the show on social media, we are at Newest Olympian on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we're also at reddit.com slash r slash the newest Olympian. If you want to help out the show in a non-monetary way, spreading it by word of mouth is awesome, and I really appreciate it. You can post about it on social media. You can leave a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're using. You can reach out to someone that you know that you think would like the show, whether it's an email, a text message, whatever, and just say, hey, there's this really cool podcast hosted by this really cool, humble guy. And I think you would enjoy it. If you do that, I would really appreciate it. But I'm just so thankful that you listened to this episode of TNO. And I hope you tune into our next episode where our guest will be Johnny Frolicstein. We'll be talking about chapter 11 and maybe a little bit of chapter 12 of the Sea of Monsters. But until then, I'll see you later. Hey, hi, how's it going, everyone? It's me, ASMR Mike. I'm here in a very soundproofy room that Brandon has set up in his little studio. There are so many knobs and dials for various sound equipment that I am very much confused by and perplexed by. There's just all sorts of of stuff and and knobs. I'm just going to read some of the labels on top of knobs of of various things, just because it's a lot of audio words that I don't know what this means. Something about headroom, something, there's a rig knob, there's a neck knob, there's an enhance knob, there's a cut high frequency knob, there's a boot high frequency knob. There's a bandwidth knob. I'm also seeing a six band stereo equalizer. I'm seeing various functions buttons. I see something called Auteur. That's the brand, which makes it sound very, very fancy. I've got something here where the brand is called PreSonus, a fader port. I don't know what that means, but there's there's a whole bunch of stuff. Brandon also has a bunch of guitars and, and things in here. There's, I think, a mandolin and uh, a, a bass and a band it's an audio heaven here if you know things about audio and i am a pro podcaster but i'm not a sound designer like brandon is so i feel confused but i feel at home talking into this microphone i at least know how that works you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.